Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, but first Mark will tying some loose ends, if you will, in chapter 1, our second lesson in the book of Hebrews. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to come together to uh, study your word. And we're so grateful for Mark and his diligence and preparation and making these studies very interesting. And uh, we thank you for his faithfulness and bless this time together that we would be encouraged and come away with more knowledge to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone again. We've just gotten started looking at the letter to the Hebrews. And by way of quick review, this is a letter written by a great scholar of the Greek Old Testament or Septuagint, someone who was not personally with Christ when he walked in the flesh, but a second generation disciple, so to speak. Many think it's the Apostle Paul. There's a lot of scholarly evidence that it was someone who worked closely with Paul, but not Paul himself. And this is written to a synagogue community of Judeans or Hebrews using the Greek scriptures to convince them to not renounce Christ in order to avoid the imminent persecution that will be coming down on their heads by the, um, it's not explicitly stated here, but we know from Acts and history when uh, Nero bonded the power of Rome to the power of the illegitimate Judean leadership, uh, then the three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation began, and many, many In fact, a preponderance of all Christians died during those three and a half years. So this is the context that we're looking at. And the writer is laying out a very, very detailed, very cohesive, very brilliantly put together argument to these Judeans for them not to go back and depend on the old covenant and the temple sacrifices for their standing before God. And he started off by pointing out that 
God has resumed communication with Israel through his son that, that had previously been done by angels and prophets that in the, in their last days, the son had taken that over and, and then we had seven points in chapter one of how Christ was superior to the angels, and that's what we talked about last time. I wanted to uh, touch on one point in uh, verse 14 of chapter 1. In talking about the angels, it uh, closes out by saying, Are they not all ministering spirits being sent out to those who shall be heirs of salvation? And that's how the King James translates it. But the Greek word there is mello, M-E-L-L-O. And this word is almost consistently mistranslated by the King James translators to leave out the eminence that is intent in this word mello. So both literal translations that I have, instead of saying, for those who shall be heirs of salvation, it says, because of those about to inherit salvation, because of those about to inherit salvation, the literal translations agree. The literal translation of mellow is, it's about to happen. And the King James translators and other English translators as well, I mean, the... Uh, the Bishop's Bible and some of the others that the King James translators relied on all did the same thing. They couldn't understand how these things could have been imminent at the time these letters were written, so they just changed the translation. But in this context here, those who are about to inherit salvation have a special ministry of the angels to help them to protect them. Now, in the old covenant world, who had the inheritance? Who could expect salvation? Who had standing before Yahweh under the old covenant? The Israelites. Exactly, exactly. The Israelites. So do you see here how the entire meaning changes based on the mistranslation of this one word? There is a group about to inherit salvation. So if the salvation belong to one group and another group is going to receive the, the first group's inheritance, what does that imply about the first group, the Israelites uh, in this case? Are they going to voluntarily donate their inheritance to this new group? I think they would object a little. Yes, they did. That's what we studied in the book of Acts was all of their objections when Paul was trying to hand their inheritance to a bunch of foreigners. They did not appreciate it at all. So the old heirs, you see, will either have to be disinherited or killed in order for the inheritance to pass to a new group of heirs. And, and I don't want to carry that too far because I mean that's not here in this passage but you, you see what I'm saying there's a new group about to inherit salvation this is so consistent with what we saw as we went through the book of Acts so I just wanted to point that out here before we 
went into chapter 2. So we've seen the superiority of the angels. The angels, uh, well, one other point is that they're, as we also have pointed out going through the Gospels and Acts, we see a high level of demonic and angelic activity in the time from John the Baptist till the ends of the lifetime of the apostles and and miracles, which we'll talk more about in chapter 2, we do not see the degree of demonic uh, workings, angelic workings, and signs and wonders in our day-to-day lives today as was occurring in this very special 40-year period, roughly, between John the Baptist beginning his preaching and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. These were special times, and things were being shaken out. I mean, this was a time of transition. It was a time of old things ending and new things beginning, very chaotic and a lot of, of strange and unusual things, you know, happened at that time. And if we don't recognize that when we read the Bible, when those special days are being referred to, people can draw all kinds of false conclusions about, you know, what Christians should be doing today. Should these signs and wonders continue? Uh, should I, you know, expect an angel to speak in my ear every day to tell me what to do? It's and so on and so forth. So think it's important that we understand the context and again understand the corruption of our English translations on the imminence of these catastrophic transformations that the prophets had spoken of all right if there's anything else we can move now to chapter two Craig then please read uh, the first four verses for us okay Hebrews chapter two Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Great. Thank you very much. We can see now why the writer took pains to establish Christ's superiority to angels uh, before getting here. He also had established that the angels had a great part in bringing the law of Moses, and this is surely what he's referring to, In the second verse there, the word spoken through angels, this in the first chapter was established as the law of Moses. And it's not explicitly written in the scriptures, but it was a commonly understood tradition in the first century synagogues. And it's attested to in many non-inspired Hebrew writings uh, from the first and second centuries bc and so on so the law in this writer's mind came through the angels and then the new revelation has come through the sun and so he's taken pains to establish that the sun is higher than the angels and again 
I think we touched on this last time, but we have seven levels or forms of life, according to the Bible, with God's eternal life, uncreated life, Zoe life in the Greek, as the highest form of life. And then we have angelic life under that, angels created by God. They have a higher form of life than human life, which is the third level down. And so we're going to see an interplay between those three forms of life here in the second chapter, God's life, angel life, and human life. Again, and I've heard preachers quote this first verse of chapter 2 and talk and apply it to our present day without any qualification at all. And I'm sure there is some value to that. But there is an urgency in the original writing. We must maintain the principle of audience relevance as we read the Bible. This is written to a community facing imminent, complete destruction. And in addition to physical destruction, their spiritual standing before God is at stake here. And so there's a great sense of urgency that would have applied to the original first century audience much more dramatically than we would just apply it to ourselves or people today generally. Uh, Not that it should be neglected entirely, but most of us hopefully have a little more time than than these people did that this letter was originally addressed to. They had to pay attention to the gospel. That's what they had heard is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, so as not to drift away from it. And this drifting away sounds like, oh, just casually drifting away. And that's, that is a reasonable translation of the original uh, Greek. But it's almost like you're cast adrift and the ship has cast out a lifeline to you and you grab hold of it and then you just let it slip through your hands. And in the context here, there's not going to be another chance. The ship is not going to circle back to throw the lifeline out to you a second time. And he he reminds them here as we continue into verse 2 that the law required a punishment for every violation. Every disobedient act received a just recompense. And if we look at other writings, we see that the law, at least to Paul, as, as he writes in Romans or in Galatians, the law brought forth his understanding of right and wrong, and then he knew what was right and wrong, and yet he still did what was wrong. And so the consequence of learning the difference between good and evil according to the law was sin, and sin, or a failure to meet the requirements of the law, brought about death. The punishment for it was death, separation from God. And so in calling all this to mind here in verse 2, he asked the question in verse 3, what escape will there be for us if we neglect a salvation so great? Christ came to save Israel 
from the legal requirements of the law. So to let that slip through your hands, the safety rope, there is no escape. There is no other chance. There is no other way to bypass the legal requirements of the law of Moses. Mark, yes. may I interject a question? Sure. It sounds like in reading this that God is dealing with a whole nation state. But in fact, that nation state, to the extent it was a nation, had been rejecting God from even before the time of David. And every king that had come along had done so, and including David. And so my question is, when we read about the Lord giving Israel another chance uh, to follow Messiah, shouldn't we perhaps think of this in terms of giving, that, that he's giving every living Israelite of the time that chance one by one, rather than some uh, notion of a corporate uh, salvation for the state, which I think a lot of people want to think about, but God speaks to us as individuals now. Wasn't he speaking to the Israelites, uh, the fallen sons of the house of Israel, individually at the time of uh, Jesus? It, wasn't it always an individual decision? Well, we've, we've kind of gotten into this discussion before in that we have heard all of our lives that it's all an individual thing. And yet Paul said his gospel was nothing but the promises made to the fathers. And Paul, of course, wrote, what, two-thirds of the New Testament. And he says his gospel is nothing but the hope of Israel, nothing but the promises made to the fathers. And we went and looked at, in detail at the resurrection promises in Isaiah and in Ezekiel 37, where the Valley of Dry Bones, God just flat out tells us these bones are the whole house of Israel. They're not individuals. It is the whole house of Israel. Israel was going to be resurrected as a corporate body, but that body is made up, of course, of individuals. And each individual within the old nation state of Israel, which was doomed, had their individual choice, and as do the audience of this letter. They can stay in the old physical Israel, which was a failed state, as you aptly described, or they could be translated and stay in the transformed, spiritually resurrected Israel, which I believe was the entire history of the book of Acts, is, is how Israel was transformed from that failed, imperfect, physical nation and bride and people into a spiritual, perfect bride, a perfect nation whose only ruler is Jesus Christ. So I don't want to deny the individual aspect, but there is a collective aspect that has been greatly neglected in recent scholarship. And as we are going to see, when we talk about human life, being translated into God's life. I mean, God's son needed a bride, and there was no helpmeet suitable for her to steal that language from the Garden of Eden. 
And his bride is not one Christian or a second Christian or a third. It is the entire collective body. Our individual choice is whether we want to place our trust in being part of that body. So there is an individual component to it, but there is also a very, very strong collective component to it as well. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll continue to look at this. I mean, <laughs> it, is, it is difficult. Yes, because obviously when the speaker here, be it Paul or whoever it was writing this letter, not everybody did listen. Not everybody did respond. I don't know what the population of Jerusalem was at the time. But of the uh, residents there, how many of them actually did listen and how many didn't? Right. Well, we got if those If they numbers. didn't listen, it sounds to me like they were left behind. Yeah, we exactly. They were. We, we got those numbers a little bit in the book of Acts, and that, that number is depicted as 144,000 in the book of Revelation out of millions. I mean, 144,000 out of millions and millions. So it was a remnant. As, as we see over and over again. But again here, this synagogue community was certainly not in Judea because they spoke Greek as their first language. But, you know, they didn't get together and vote and say, well, if 51% of us agree with this letter, you know, we will not deny Jesus as a Messiah. You know, you know it was each individual hearing this had to make that decision for themselves. There was no collective action involved, but it is a collective body that is being discussed in all of this. The salvation was foreordained for Israel, the perfect bride of Christ, in her final form. And so our choice is, do we believe that, and will we take measures or, or allow ourselves to become part of that, God's free gift, or will we put our trust in physical things which have no spiritual value whatsoever? I think the, hopefully as we go through the letter, perhaps some of this will begin to make a little more sense. It's, Thanks. It, it is, you know, um, twice in the last six months, it's come up where I've introduced these topics to Christians who are dissatisfied with the status quo but what I tell them is more shocking than they imagined. And they say, wow, this is really complicated. I, you know, I can't understand this in 30 minutes. And I say, well, it's really a lot simpler. But what's hard is casting off all of the bad, bad Bible teaching that we've been subject to for, our, you know, decades of our life. It's really hard to give that up. Just like it was hard for Paul to give that up. He was raised as a Pharisee, and, you know, he had to give it up. We have to give up the failed biblical views that produce confusion, great confusion and division uh, in the body of Christ. When we return to his eternal purpose, which is to create a bride for his son, then it all falls into place much, much simpler than all these convoluted human theories that we've been subjected to. So, yeah, well, you'll just have to bear with me here a while longer. Okay, so, oh, yeah, we're, we're going through this first paragraph here. The salvation, again, is for Israel as a nation, but it was 
individuals within that nation. They were faced with doom. Their only deliverance from the law was through Messiah, as had been promised for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This salvation was first announced through the Lord. Jesus in his fleshly person, no doubt, is in mind here in verse 3. And then it was delivered to us with assurance by those who heard him. So the author is not including himself in with those who heard him, those who physically were with Jesus in his body. But those early disciples are the ones who delivered the gospel of salvation to the audience of the letter and the author of the letter. They all heard the gospel from those who had been with Christ. And then verse 4 tells us that God at the same time confirmed the message with signs and wonders and a variety of mighty works and with gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And this is again what we saw in the book of Acts. Jesus could heal a leper instantly by touching him. Peter could heal a leper with one touch. There at the beautiful gate in Acts 3, Jesus could raise people from the dead. The apostles could raise people from the dead. Being bit by a poisonous snake, which people try to copy that today with usually bad, bad results. <laughs> Paul was, uh, we skipped over that when we studied Acts. He was bitten by a highly poisonous viper there when he was shipwrecked. And he just shook it off and it didn't even, uh, you know, affect him. So, These signs and wonders were of a special order that accompanied divine revelation, or what we would say the creation of the New Testament record that has been left to us. That record was confirmed with signs and wonders and a variety of mighty works, and they were of a limited duration We don't see those type of things going on today. Even the greatest faith healer alive cannot reproduce this level of miracle. You know, taking someone who was born without an arm and with one touch, giving them a perfect arm and fingers, you know, in an instant. uh, Those kinds of things. So we see this very consistently uh, in the scriptures that these had a, temporary purpose related to the completing of God's revelation. And so a lot of confusion comes because of folks who believe that these signs and wonders are continuing on to this day and believe that they're getting ongoing revelation from God as these first century disciples did. If that's true, then the Bible isn't finished yet. You see, there's still divine revelation going on. But some groups have one set of revelations and another group has another set of revelations. And, and of course, this is exactly what we do do have and do what we see with the Jehovah's Witnesses, with the uh, uh, Mormons, and with some charismatic and Pentecostal movements, you have new messages coming from God. So when, when was the message really finished? Or has it been at all? But again, the, the Hebrews 2 verse 4 is very consistent with what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13 and particularly in Ephesians 4 where 
he specifically says that he gave gifts to men until the body of Christ could become fully grown and mature. And well, and you could have a whole study on that one topic, but that's just it's just kind of mentioned here in passing. All right, any other comments or thoughts there on the first four verses? If not, then let's please read verses 5 through 9. 5 through 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection of receipt. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Oh, great. Thank you. All right, so switches back to angels here to say that the coming world, and this is that same word, mello, that I mentioned at the beginning tonight, M-E-L-L-O. It's not the coming world as in indefinitely in the future. It is the world that is about to come. There is an imminence in this. The new world is coming, and it's coming quickly. And this new world is not going to be subject to angels like the old world was. The old world is the old covenant world of the law of Moses. And again, we've, we've had hundreds of years in the Protestant church and, and in probably most of the Catholic churches as well, when we see world in the Bible, we think of that as planet Earth. But this is not what was conveyed uh, in the first century by this type of language. The Greek word here, I can't pronounce it at all. It's a long word, oikomene, something like this. But it's talking about land, that is the earthy part of the globe as opposed to the ocean and specifically the Roman Empire. So it's not the word cosmos, but here it's another word, but in the first century reader's mind, this was the known world, the Roman world, okay, their world. The old was on its way out, and something new was on its way in imminently here, and it was going to be subject to Christ. And again, if you... Just skim read the book of Daniel, you understand that when Messiah came, his kingdom was going to sweep away all the kingdoms of the world. And so, again, I see a great consistency there. The writer moves on to quote from the 8th Psalm. Again, the Psalms are quoted many, many times in this letter. What is man that you should... Be mindful of him. And again, this is a contrast between the Zoe life, the uncreated life of God, to the created life 
of man. Man is lower, two levels lower than God. As Frank Viola puts it, it would be like a human comparing himself to a turkey. You know, the turkey is at least two levels of life lower than human life. And, well, and he makes fun of the what would Jesus do uh, bracelets because a human can no more do what God could do than a turkey could do what a human could do. You can't live life by a list of what's right and what's wrong, which is what the Jews were doing. The Pharisees, they claimed a place in God's presence by their perfect knowledge of good and evil. But here, there's a huge gulf between the life of God and the life of man. And yet God chose to be mindful of man and looked upon him. Human life, you see, is a little lower than the angels. And Christ became lower than the angels. Christ was fully God, but then he became the son of man and and took upon himself human life, which is lower than angelic life. God had to become human in order to raise up a remnant of humanity to God's life and to change us, transform us from humans into God. Not None of us as individuals are like God, but collectively, together, we are the body of Christ. We are Christ's body, and that body must have the divine life within it. Again, you you couldn't marry your son or daughter to a turkey. God could not marry his son to a turkey, Israel, as Chuck so eloquently stated. (laughs) It didn't work out well. It just didn't work out well. So God became man, and then as the Messiah in human form, he then paved the way for us to be elevated to the Zoe life of God. The psalm there talks about man being set over creation, and the physical creation prefigures this new spiritual kingdom that God ultimately would create in which his son would reign over that. And man in their human form could reign over physical creation. But man in his new spiritual form, in a new birth, would then reign with God. And that's what the word Israel means. They rule with God over his spiritual kingdom, his spiritual creation. So, I mean, I guess those are somewhat advanced Uh, concepts, but they are consistently revealed and taught throughout the Bible, I believe. And again, they've been buried and camouflaged by all kinds of human ideas, and that's what makes it so difficult for us to grasp today. All things are subjected to Christ, and as this letter is being written, all things are not yet subject to him. 
because his parousia had not yet occurred, but it was imminent. All the language speaks of the imminence of this of this thing, and of course that's when all things would be put under his feet. His enemies would be destroyed, and his enemies at that time were the rulers of the corrupt uh, Judean nation and their accomplices in Rome. And, you know, within the space of three and a half years, all of that was put to naught, which is what I believe this the whole book of Revelation is describing. But uh, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that he took upon himself. And he has been raised up and, and crowned. Uh, uh, many scholars believe this is referring to the transfiguration, where just before his last trip to Jerusalem, he was exalted there in front of a few witnesses. But it's a little bit uh, problematic. Was he glorified and crowned before his death, or was this after his death, you know, spiritually? But either way you look at it, it wasn't fully consummated until the destruction of Jerusalem, which, again, all nearly all the prophets foretold that and combined the deliverance of Israel with the destruction of Israel with the return of Messiah to David's throne or the establishment of Messiah on David's throne to fulfill all of these promises but again (laughs) i'm butchering this a little bit but again you see the son of god the manifestation of god as described by john taking upon himself the form of human life and in doing that he suffers he becomes complete by his suffering and he tastes death for all of us and This will set the stage for much of what will be argued later on in the letter here about the superiority of Christ's priesthood and how he was a perfect priest and that the Levitical priests in Jerusalem were part of a failed order. Okay, well, I'm going to stop here. We may come back and hit a few points that I've missed here on this before we move on with verse 10 next time. Any closing thoughts or comments or questions uh, tonight before we end? Well, I guess, I guess not, Mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I probably got everybody totally confused there. But anyway, hopefully as we go through this, some it, it, he's going to keep coming back, reinforcing these earlier points, repeating them and using them to build on the argument that is just going to smash the idea that there's safety in returning to the conventional Judean religion, the law of Moses. You see, there is no safety in that. And so he's going to systematically destroy uh, the mythology that it's safer to renounce Jesus. All right, well, thank you all for listening tonight. Thank you, Mark. I think it's great that you're stimulating our gray matter because it's uh, an activity that's not... uh, not widely done in America. We resort to religion just as the ancient Israelites did by doing things by rote. 
and not thinking about what they believe. And I think you you help in that matter to get people to think about these issues. And we, we appreciate what you do. Thanks for the, the lesson. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.